You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 23rd of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, we begin with the latest from Israel and Palestine, as we wait for the pause in fighting and an exchange of prisoners to begin. Then world leaders have been meeting virtually. We'll have a readout of the G20 and BRICS summit, both held online this week. Poland wants to create the biggest air hub in Europe, but the change of government may put the kibosh on those plans. We'll have analysis on how this might impact the airline industry. The UN has adopted a resolution calling for an Olympic truce for the Paris Games. We'll look at the history of this sporting tradition, how it's changed and what the modern day equivalent might look like. We'll have a flick through the day's papers, a roundup of art news and then... We are in a space that is about 37 metres long and about 27 metres wide, and it has 244 bodies in it. Monocle's Emma Nelson picks her way carefully through sculptor Anthony Gormley's latest exhibition. That's all here on The Globalist, live from London. To look at what else is happening in the news, far-right politician Geert Wilders has produced a shock victory in the Dutch elections. The UN Refugee Agency has urged Pakistan to halt deportation of undocumented Afghan refugees during the harsh winter season. Islamabad wants to expel over a million people. And New Zealand's National Party says it's reached an agreement with the other parties to form a government, ending weeks of negotiations and political uncertainty with the country under a caretaker government. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, an agreement brokered by Qatar between Israel and Hamas involving the exchange of hostages held by Hamas for Palestinian detainees and a temporary ceasefire was set to take effect at 10am today, but now seems to be on hold until at least Friday. Well, I'm joined down the line by Yossi Meckelberg, who's an associate fellow at Chatham House and a lecturer in international relations at the University of Roehampton. Yossi, many thanks for joining us once again. Do we, first of all, know the exact terms of the deal and how it came together? Uh, good morning. What we, we know by now is that uh, there will be hostage or prisoners exchange. Uh, Hamas uh, will release 50 mainly women and, 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 and children uh, that were captured in uh, October 7. Israel will release again a uh, 150 prisoners, women and, and minors that, you know, some of them, most of them been convicted, some on administrative uh, arrest, and it will prompt four days of, of ceasefire or pause in the, uh, in, in, in the war. And in the meantime, it also creates space for humanitarian aid to enter in, into Gaza. There was an additional aspect, which I'm not so sure if it's part of the agreement, it's a bit vague, or it's a more 
a statement from Israel that it is ready to add an extra day of pause in the in the hostilities for every ten for every ten hostages being released by Hamas. So this was all meant to begin today at 10 a.m., but we're told now that it won't happen till Friday at the earliest. Do we know why this delay? Yeah, it was yesterday declared, and actually it was Hamas and uh, one of their leaders, Abu Marzouk, uh, said that you know, it, it would start at, at 10 o'clock today. Uh, what should we see overnight from both you know, what uh, the Qatari says and also in, in Israel is that there are some technical hitches in this, which can can, can be answered as a result of the fact that we are talking about the war zone hostages that are kept in different location in 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 Gaza. So it means what they call like the technical or the administrative issues. Mainly, the Hamas haven't hasn't shown until now the list of of hostages going to be released. Bear in mind that we think, again, it hasn't been complete confirmed uh, that there are 236 uh, hostages. And uh, just imagine how nerve-wracking it is for the families back in Israel, not knowing who are the fifth is going to be released. You know, some attribute it to some mind games, but uh, I think it's more the, the, the administrative issue of trying to locates the hostages and then send the list and decide how they are moving to to safe places. Mm. And in terms of Palestinians who are to be released, as you say, some of those have already been convicted uh, and and, and some it's more administrative. Are these mostly youngsters? Uh, Women and and, and youngsters. Uh, And also there is a huge variation in what what they committed. It's from... uh, strong throwing or even trying to stab the security people and, 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 and civilians. I think so some other administrative arrests so kind of uh, I went through the list of them there is uh, different uh, what they were actually either charge or put under administrative arrest is for various mm. offenses. I think bear in mind that on this exchange of, of hostages for, for prisoners, there are no soldiers involved, and not what Israel called prisoners that have blood on their hands. This will have to wait for for later, and then the negotiation going to be way more difficult. Mm. Uh, Yossi, let's just look at this pause in fighting. Does it affect both North and South Gaza? Is it going to include Lebanon's Hezbollah, and what about the West Bank? So I think, yeah, you're right, we need to separate between the, between the three. And Gaza is going to be a complete ceasefire uh, uh, or pause in, in the hostilities. Uh, Hezbollah probably will follow suit. In the West Bank, you have to remember that kind of low intensity uh, uprising or, or militancy is taking place for, for years and in the hub of places like Nablus or, or Jenin. This is going for a long time and escalated since October 7. And uh, depends on who you look at, what figures you look, uh, about 300 Palestinians have been killed uh, all, all already in, 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 in the West Bank. So I, I'm not so sure this is applied to, uh, to the West Bank and it's likely whatever happens there to continue.
And, and I wonder about the situation on the border with Jordan, because there is concern that there might be attempts to force Palestinians across the Jordan River. I think that there is, especially on the far right in, in Israel, they're still, they're still fantasizing on the uh, on building settlements in, in, in Gaza, uh, pushing, transferring uh, Gazan people either to Egypt or to Jordan. I think there's already been a warning from, from the Biden administration that this won't be tolerated. I think right now it's, it's on the very margins of Israeli politics. The problem is that some of these margins of Israeli politics are actually in government, and the writing articles are going in the media, there is a lot of things going on, and some of them pushing the discourse to a very extreme place. I don't think this is, this is, this is a policy now, and uh, this is definitely will be escalation of, 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 of this war to something completely different. Mm. Uh, how has the, the deal been received by the public and indeed the political class in, in Israel? And how might it affect the popularity or otherwise of Bibi Netanyahu? I think uh, for obvious reasons, uh, most Israeli welcome any release of, of, of hostages. We have to remember that in this round, we're talking again on not only on minors, but probably a range of age between between uh, 10 months to, to 80 uh, people that with some of them need uh, urgent medical uh, treatment. So I think this is this is this is very very positive, and that's even the. The far right, most of the far right, in this, with the exception of few in government, supported the government uh, decision, the cabinet decision. I, I think it might bring some temporary reprieve for Netanyahu, but in, in the long term, you look at uh, public opinion poll after 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 another. There is a, there is there is most of of, of the population. Uh, thinks that Netanyahu should go. I think both societies, the Israel-Palestinians, are so polar, so far away. Actually, Hamas, just in the recent poll that came out yesterday, Hamas is supported by, and even the action of, of, of October 7th, supported by nearly 76% of Palestinians. We hear that there might be a deal for the Red Cross to visit any hostages held in Gaza after the pause, those that haven't been released. Do we know any more about that? Well, at least according to Prime Minister Netanyahu and some other sources, this is part of of the agreement, which is which is very important because of the again the age range and the and the medical and the health situation of of some of the of the hostages. We we don't know how many of them, for instance, been been injured. How many of them get the medication that they they, they, they need? So I think yes, this this would be another positive, uh, positive development. It's not only their condition. Also, we don't know how many of the 230 things that we think are, are in captivity are, are, are actually alive. Mm. So this will give verification if the ICRC is allowed to to visit them of of, of confirmation of that they are. They're alive. And finally, Yossi, what is the likelihood that this pause might mutate into something like a ceasefire without any actual concession being made verbally? I think we are inching uh, one step closer uh, to that. The fact that uh, a mediated uh, agreement is possible, and you see Qatar, the United States, uh, Egypt, 
working on it. We all know that the war can't continue uh, forever. We see the level of of of, the, of casualties on the Palestinian side, way above thirteen thousand people killed, many of them civilians. So this is this is a matter of maybe days, maybe weeks, but it has to come to an end. So I think this is one step that shows they can, even if they don't negotiate directly, but through a mediator, it's possible then to have more frequent a more frequent uh, process and, and leading to lead, leading to a ceasefire. Yossi, thank you very much indeed. That was Yossi Meckelberg there, and this is The Globalist. Two international bodies met virtually this week. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa hosted the BRICS countries online on Tuesday. And yesterday, the G20 was hosted by India's Premier Narendra Modi. This is notable because Vladimir Putin attended both. Well, I'm joined now from Bengaluru by journalist Maya Sharma. Maya, many thanks for coming on the show. Now, BRICS has previously focused only on economic issues, but in this meeting called for an end to war crimes in the Gaza conflict. How unusual is it that they focused on political issues? Well, of course, the war, the violence that is happening in the Gaza Strip is really of prime importance across the world. And BRICS could not refrain from really talking about this. And they have taken a view. This is, of course, a gathering of countries from what is described as the global south. And they have definitely taken a view that condemns Israel and has talked about the displacement of Palestinians as war crimes. They're extremely concerned about the high rate of civilian casualties in the Gaza Strip. So this, as the Global South, it has, of course, always been supporting the Palestinian cause on this front. And South Africa, the country that hosted this summit, has also, with the, uh, the Parliament of South Africa, has actually called for the cutting of diplomatic ties with Israel, sending back of Israel's ambassador. So that is the context in which this was held. And India, which initially did, in fact, abstain from a UN resolution calling for a truce in the region, is now, of course, also condemning it and calling for a ceasefire, calling for a cessation of the hostility. So really, it is just such a huge issue that, yes, although BRICS focuses on economic issues, this group of this group of countries decided they had to say something together about what is happening in Gaza. I wonder how unified they are, though, because we know, so for instance, India has big ties with Israel. Uh, is there any kind of internal split here? Is it slightly less enthusiastic than the others? Well, yes, because initially when the United Nations did in fact call for a truce, India abstained from that vote. A lot of domestic criticism on that, but it did abstain. It did not vote against it the way the United States and the United Kingdom did, but it did abstain from the vote, indicating that Israel was a friendly country. And Netanyahu did in fact call Prime Minister Narendra Modi almost as soon as the aggression began. He did in fact call India. So India has always said that they're backing Israel, that they condemn terrorism, as the event has gone on, as it has continued and the violence has continued and the number of civilian deaths has risen, I think India found itself softening the stance of being only pro-Israel. They have shifted a little bit and a recent UN resolution, they did in fact vote in favour of the cessation of hostilities. They've welcomed the proposed release of hostages and they are hoping that humanitarian aid can also come in. But yes, India not as totally 
critical of Israel from the start, the mm. way the other countries of the BRICS group were. Now, we know that President Vladimir Putin didn't attend the annual BRICS summit in August because of the ICC arrest warrant. Uh, what was his contribu- contribution to, to this online meeting? Well, yes, he did come up and expectedly he did talk about firstly the war in Ukraine. He described it as a war, not as a military action. He described it as a war and said it's always a tragedy. And that, in fact, he'd never, Russia had never actually not agreed to peace talks with Ukraine. So that was interesting in the sense it's the first time where he's talked about cessation of hostilities in Ukraine. Mm. Ukraine, of course, being a bit on the back burner on the international consciousness com- compared to what's happening between Israel and uh, the Gaza uh, population. But he did talk about, we are ready for peace talks. I mean, he did say, we've never said no to peace talks. He said, war is always a tragedy. So that was an interesting contribution. Mm. And And he he did, of course, raise Palestine as well. Yes. He was also at the G20 meeting yesterday. And and again, he skipped the flagship in-person meeting in New Delhi in September. I just wonder how significant his attendance and his rare interaction with Western nations is. Well, yes. But again, Western nations, of course, uh, uh, President Biden was not there. He, I think, quoted Thanksgiving, but Biden was not there on the same summit. He wasn't there at all. Justin Trudeau was there, which was interesting given the recent friction between India and Canada. But Putin actually being there, actually talking was a big deal. He did not, of course, come for the physical summit held in September, but he did appear. India and Russia, of course, do go back a very long way. They went back a long way with the USSR as well. And India and Russia have ties when it comes to defense, when it comes to trading. So that may have played a part. The fact that he appeared on a summit hosted by India, hosted by India's Narendra Modi, that may also have played a part because India does have a strong history and a strong present as well when it comes to Russia. How important is it for Modi to host international gatherings like this? I mean, what's his primary aim? Well, he does like to be on the world stage. That's that's a definite thing, that he does want to be seen as a local leader, a representative of the global south, and one who is leading the voice of these developing economies. He, he does really appreciate that. This is the second time in the G20 connection itself that he has hosted this. And this is the first time that's actually happened. They had the physical summit in September. And now this virtual summit that was attended by you know, different countries, of course, all of the regular members as well, but also the African Union and guest countries as well. They all attended this. So India and Prime Minister Modi did feel this was a a recognition of perhaps India's growing importance on the world stage and something very important to Prime Minister Modi himself. Mm. And there is a general election coming up next year as well. What were the key points then arising from this G20 meeting? Well, there was, of course, a ratification of what were the New Delhi declaration points. That was basically ratification and a moving forward of those. But on issues that happened after September, of course, West Asia, Israel, Gaza, that was a real priority. And all of the countries agreed that They have zero tolerance for terrorism. They lamented the loss of the lives of women and children in the Gaza Strip and welcomed a possible humanitarian pause and the release of hostages. Other issues, of course, they spoke about artificial intelligence, the potential negative effects of AI, the danger of deep fakes. That also came to the fore. Uh, Essentially, though, apart from food security, health security, sustainable development, its focus was definitely on what is happening in West Asia and the need for peace to end what is happening there, which many, many people feel is really, really cannot go on. Maya, thank you very much indeed. That's Maya Sharma there. Now, still to come on the programme... 
Paris 24, Los Angeles 28. As Paris gears up to host the Olympics next year, the UN has urged for an Olympic truce. We'll unpack what this means with analyst Kieran Pender. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Let's continue now with today's newspapers. And joining me in the studio is political journalist and author Terry Stiastany. Good morning to you, Terry. Good morning. Shock news from uh, from uh, the from the Netherlands. Uh, tell us more about yes. Piet Wilder, who's who's appears to have won the election. Well, yes, overnight, um, certainly according to uh, the exit polls, and I think um, given the latest information, uh, Geert Wilders, uh, the Party for Freedom, is now predicted to win uh, 37 seats out of 150 in the Dutch Parliament. I'm just looking at the article uh, in the Guardian here, which was from from last night, but I think some of the other Dutch papers. Are now saying that this number of seats has gone up and and people calling this uh, a major electoral upset whose reverberations will be felt around Europe. Um, so, I mean, Gert Wilders, you know, he's obviously been around for a while and the right, you know, on the right wing of Dutch politics. Um, but I think people were really, really surprised by this result. And certainly in any of the, uh, sort of the previews of the election that I've been reading, I didn't see many people predicting uh, that this would happen. Mm. Um, you know, he's got a, a manifest that apparently includes uh, calls for bans on mosques, uh, bans on Islamic headscarves in government buildings, though he's been trying to play that down now because, of course, he's got to try and form a coalition. Um, but, yeah, quite a, a shock result here in, in the Netherlands. I mean, he's very, very anti-Islam. Uh, but can he form a government? Most uh, other parties seem to have said that they will refuse to work well, with him. Well, yes, this is the this is the tricky thing. Um, so the Green Left uh, Labour Party, is, who's led by Franz Timmermans is forecast to come second with 25 seats. They've said that they definitely won't go into a coalition with him. Um, Mark Rutter's party, the, the Freedom and Democracy Party, which is now led by Dylan Yeshilgos, um, had said possibly they might have been open to the idea of having a coalition with him, but this week they changed their view on that, said they won't support Wilders as, as Prime Minister. Um, so, you know, she has said, we can't see that happening because Wilders cannot form a majority. Um, so yes, you know, although this article is pointing out the party that wins the most seats traditionally provides the next Prime Minister, um, it's not guaranteed to do so. And there's obviously going to be sort of coalition negotiations am- among all of the parties. And Mark Ritter will be 
in a caretaker role until a new government comes in. But they're now saying this might not be before the spring. So whatever happens, there's going to be quite a lot of uncertainty. Mm. I mean, just having a look at what he he, uh, represents, he wants the Netherlands to stop sending arms to Ukraine. He's also been talking about Nexit, about coming out of the European Union. Well, this is uh, is an interesting article here on the Politico website, where the headline is, Gerd Wilders is the EU's worst nightmare. Um, They are saying that, you know, he has tried to be toning down his anti-Islamic rhetoric recently, but also saying that, you know, he has promised that they would be a a Nexit vote on whether the Netherlands would leave the EU. Um, And this article is describing, say, a seat for Wilders around the EU summit table would transform the dynamic uh, in in Brussels. And but certainly also just looking at the people who have praised him and and saying welcoming his his win in the election. Uh, So Georgia Maloney, Marine Le Pen, Victor Orban was one of the first people to kind of celebrate this. And he was saying the winds of change are here. Um, So, yeah, this is really worrying, not only uh, in Brussels, but around the rest of Europe as well. I mean, that's chilling language, isn't it? Well, yes, the the winds of change. I mean, you know, yes, he's going to talk this up in in terms of of the rhetoric of it. But, you know, yes, with friends like these, you know. Mm. Uh, Let's have a look at Germany. Uh, Big hole of their budget. Yes. And this is is a fascinating story. And I think it's going to be one that is going to be quite, you know, have quite an impact not again not only in in Germany but in in the rest of Europe and and even more widely so um the german constitutional court has slapped down uh, Germany's budget proposal. This is reported on as a good explainer here by Tanit Koch in The New European, um, which is, describes it as uh, German splaining, breaking with their stereotype, the country's fiscal responsibility has gone awry. But basically what happened is the German constitutional court said, look, you've got all of this money, 60 billion euros of emergency credits, which you were supposed to use for the pandemic relief. You didn't. They didn't use them. The German government thought, well, we can just move this these credits and this money into the climate budget, which would have made the Greens happy and the SPD and everyone thought oh, this will be great we'll sort of get this through but the Constitutional Court said no you can't do that uh, you're not allowed to to uh, to move these money you've got to ha- abide by the rules on the level of debt which has been put into the Constitution in 2009 um, and the Greens are sort of very unhappy about this the SPD wants to increase tax prices they thought well, we can get this through and but now um, you know, the Green Robert Harbeck said there'll be an economic apocalypse if if the Constitutional Court vetoes it, and and they have. So now the German government may not be able to get its budget through, and this is threatening the whole coalition. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the reason the court was involved in the first place is that the CDU filed a constitutional complaint. Yes. So you know, obviously they are. You know, they're referring this to the court, and you know, it's is another. Obviously, in the UK, we've had examples of uh, the Supreme Court ruling saying the government can't do what it. Wants wants to do. Um, but, you know, this is going to be a potential budget crisis in, in several German states and obviously has implications for what Germany can do on in areas like defence and, and other issues where they're trying to change how they, how they spend money. Well, let's continue talking about budgets because Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor of the Exchequer here in the UK, has uh, released the autumn uh, statement. Uh, I found it really interesting to see how it's been covered across the papers with the right-wing papers <laughs> hailing it as this you, kind of I mean, wonderful 
wonderful thing. Yeah, if you could look, if you looked at the British papers this morning, you would think that people had watched two completely different statements. So you've got the Financial Times saying tax burden increases, and the Times saying the tax burden is is slightly coming down. Uh, you know, the Sun has got sort of let's celebrate with champagne because alcohol duty is coming down at the same time that national insurance, which is a, a, a tax that employees pay, is also coming down. So and other people going, what on earth? You know, this is this is a terrible situation. So you know, very very divided coverage of that. But one of the things, this is just picking up on uh, an article for The Guardian here, is that it has encouraged quite a lot more talk of um, an earlier election. So talk of a, a May election seems to be going rife in West, Westminster, partly because the national insurance, the tax cut, is going to come into force in January. There's going to be emergency legislation to bring that through uh, more quickly. So they are obviously hoping that, you know, if thing, the economy starts to look better in the short term, that this might, you know, allow, open the door to a, a May election. Um, but is a lot of people also being a, a bit cautious about that and saying, well, maybe this is a first step. Maybe they will have another budget in the spring and then look to an election uh, further in, into the autumn. But, you know, it's all, you know, people are, people like to get involved in, in speculation about when an election will be. It's kind of a, it's kind of a spectator sport. I mean, I love um, former Chancellor George Osborne's comment. He said that Hunt was opening the door for a May election by recognising that you can't fatten the pig on market day. <laughs> yes, that, that, that's a good, a good expression that people often yeah, use, use yeah. in British politics. Um, but just, but just looking at what this means in real terms for, for British people, so it looks like uh, almost four million workers will be dragged into paying income tax by two thousand and twenty-eight. I mean, that's quite a, quite a, quite a big thing, isn't it? Yes, I mean, this is the shift. It's like giving people sort of an, an upfront tax cut in January, but the, because inflation is high and pay rises are going up, more people. People are paying income tax and more people are paying tax at a higher rate. So the, the more closely you look at it, the, the, the less of a sort of big special offer this is. Yeah. Uh, and finally, let's go to Italy. Yes. Well, we are talking about, yeah, ministers, particularly we're talking about, you know, the, the right. And, uh, you know, there are obviously lots of jokes about the Italian right and trains uh, to be made here. But an Italian minister, according to The Times, forced a high-speed train to stop so that he could get off. This is uh, Francesco Lollabrigida, who is the Italian agriculture minister, um, who's the brother-in-law of the prime minister, Giorgio Maloney. And he is, I looked this up, he is also related to Gina Lollabrigida. Mm. He's his, his, uh, her great-nephew, apparently. Um, he asked for the train to make an unplanned stop outside Rome because it was running late and he had an appointment. Uh, so the train duly stopped. He got into his government car. Um, but, as you would expect, uh, his political opponents are making absolute hay with this, saying you know, not everyone is able to stop a train Lola Brigida's behaviour was arrogant and unworthy, uh, somebody else saying Lola Brigida cannot turn the Italian trains into his own chauffeur-driven government car, um, and so people are calling for um, sort of an explanation from the government for this, you know, are going to ask questions about it in Parliament, um, and yeah, going possibly going to ask for his resignation. But, you know, you read further down the article and it says that the train stopped frequently. When it stopped there, lots of people got off. He wasn't the only one. Well, apparently, uh, <laughs> yeah, apparently says the surprise stop didn't delay the train or incur costs for, for the train company. But, yeah, so he was on his way to go and open a park somewhere and just decided that he, he'd had enough and, and he was going to get off. <laughs> <laughs> Terry, thank you very much indeed. That's Terry Stiastini there. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. 
Dutch far-right politician Gert Wilders has produced a shock victory in the elections. His Freedom Party will now be the largest group in Parliament, but it will face a major struggle to form any sort of cohesive government. The UN Refugee Agency has urged Pakistan to halt deportation of undocumented Afghan refugees during the harsh winter season. Last month, Islamabad announced it would expel over a million mostly Afghan refugees, over 370,000 of whom have fled Pakistan since the beginning of October. And New Zealand's National Party says it has reached an agreement with ACT New Zealand and New Zealand First to form a government, ending weeks of negotiations and political uncertainty with the country under a caretaker government. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Poland's outgoing government launched a project to build one of Europe's largest airports in the middle of the country. The Central Communication Port Mega Project, or CPK in Polish, would be capable of handling 40 million passengers and a million tonnes of cargo a year in its first stage. But since the election in October, which saw a coalition of opposition parties win a parliamentary majority, the plan is now in jeopardy. I'm joined by Gabriel Lee, who's Monocle's uh, transport correspondent. Gabriel, uh, thanks for, for coming on the show. Can you tell us more about the initial plans for this CPK? Yeah, so the initial plans are basically to create a uh, mega hub, as I think you said, uh, not just for air traffic, passenger traffic, also for cargo, and then uh, linking up high-speed rail, uh, making it kind of a, a central communications uh, transport hub for the country in the middle of in the middle of Poland. Um, so you know, a big one of these big mega projects that sort of looks to not only fill capacity needs in Poland for for air passengers, but also to sort of stimulate growth and bring more people and bring more business. And how would that have changed the aviation markets on the continent? Well. I mean, if you think about it, something like this is unheard of in Europe at the moment. You have your big hubs, which handle many, many passengers. Uh, you know, they're looking to eventually handle something like 65 million by, by, you know, sort of decades down the line. That still wouldn't reach the level of something like Frankfurt or Amsterdam at their peak, right? But uh, it's, it's a special proposition to be building something so ambitious, so, something that you would expect to see, for example, in the Gulf, uh, you know, not not in Europe. And, you know, it's, it, it would greatly change, you know, the, the options for moving people and things and potentially attract air traffic, attract new investment. I mean, what sort of challenges would there be? I think the biggest challenge here is the cost, right? You're talking about billions, billions needed in investment. And, you know, the, the these sort of things tend to go far over budget too. So, you know, according to the existing budget, that's one of the main criticisms. I mean, you hear the criticisms from the opposition and, and others who've criticized it say that it's going to be too expensive and also that it's not needed, that Poland doesn't need something like this. But, you know, for, from my perspective, I think it is interesting to see Poland get very ambitious with something like this. You know, obviously I'm not, I don't, I haven't looked at the numbers. I haven't crunched the numbers myself, but, uh, but it would be a very expensive and you know big investment. Mm. So what does the incoming government say about it? Well, they're basically saying that it's it's a it's a foolish foolish notion that it's unnecessary and that you know they're saying it would have the the, the amount of money that they would have to put into this. Uh, over time would have, you know, macroeconomic implications that that money could be better placed elsewhere. And so that's obviously a, a, an economic discussion argument that's going to be had, uh, but, uh, you know, and, and obviously complex, but that's their basic stance. Uh, and I wonder how much of the work's already been started. I mean, where the, the project is in terms of procurement and so on. I mean, will money have been wasted if it is cancelled at this point? 
I, I believe there will be quite a bit of money wasted at this point, and it's it's not a small figure. Um, they they haven't uh, started construction as far as I know, but there there have been a lot of, uh, as you say, procurement. Uh, you know, there have been orders made, there have been plans set in place. It, it would be uh, it would be a heavy penalty to stop it at this point. So that's that's another argument in favor of, of proceeding, of course. And just looking at the aviation industry as a whole, how necessary is a new hub of this size? Well, if you if you look at you know Europe and the big hubs, many of them are are constrained. They can't really grow anymore. Just look at Heathrow, and uh, you know the inability to sort of move forward with any kind of plan to add a runway or add any kind of capacity. These places, these airports are full. In many cases, there's there's also political pressure to to scale back the size of these hubs. You know, we've seen it recently. Although in Amsterdam they they dialed it back, they were going to put a cap on flights. Um, so you know, and and obviously th- things are growing. Uh, you know, whether or not they're growing fast at this point, they will. Air traffic is growing, and uh, the need for goods to move is growing. So you, you can make an argument that that Europe lacks the capacity and, and could use additional capacity, could use another mega hub that's not constrained. Mm. I wonder, though, if it goes ahead, how it will impact on the Green New Deal. I mean, will climate change still be achieved with a, another massive infrastructure like this? This is one of the central problems with uh, aviation trying to reach its, you know, carbon neutrality by 2050. You know, depending on where you are, that number changes a little bit. But, you know, of course, uh, aviation is becoming more efficient incrementally. There are there are steps being taken to make it much more efficient to move to zero emissions fuels. But as passenger traffic grows and as the rate of technological progress is is rather slow, this is a big undertaking to reform the entire industry to move away from fossil fuels. Uh, you know, you see that uh, even as we make these incremental gains, the emissions total goes up from aviation. So this is obviously a big concern. Yeah. Gabriel, thank you very much indeed. That's Gabriel Lee, our transport correspondent there. You're with Monocle Radio. The Summer Olympic Games will take place in Paris next year. The United Nations General Assembly has adopted a resolution urging member states to observe a truce from seven days before the Games until seven days after the Paralympic Games. Well, joining me now from Canberra is Kieran Pender, a writer who covers the Olympics. Kieran, welcome back to The Globalist. What exactly does the UN mean by this? This is an Olympic tradition that actually dates back to the 9th century BC, back to ancient Greece, where uh, at a time of much conflict between the Greek city-states, different Greek kings came together to pass a truce, um, the Olympic truce, to enable participants to travel to those ancient games. That's an idea that has stuck. Um, the, The Olympics have always sort of prided themselves on their um, sort of a role as a beacon of peace and political neutrality, even if you know we can question whether that's really true. It's certainly something that IOC believes strongly in. And so um, ever since the 1990s, we've seen uh, every summer and winter games, the IOC uh, push a, an Olympic truce through the United Nations. So normally that's agreed by consensus, but there was actually a vote this time. Why is that? So perhaps um, speaking to the complex geopolitical times we're in at the moment uh, as you mentioned there as always this has always been done by consensus by the un um, but russia uh, is extremely aggrieved with the ioc's um, expulsion of the russian olympic committee uh, from um, the, the, the the olympics uh, in response to the invasion of ukraine and so russia actually required that it go to a vote they 
then abstained. Um, so it was passed by 118 votes in favour and Russia and Syria abstaining. Interestingly, interestingly Belarus, who's also been um, uh, banned from um, sort of participating as an official nation uh, at the Olympics because of their involvement in the war in Ukraine, voted for um, uh, the truce, notwithstanding um, their alliance with Russia. So interesting sort of sporting geopolitics playing out at the UN right now. Well, let's have a bit of a closer look at Russia. What's its current status regarding participation in the Games? And will this change anything? I mean, we've seen Russia, Russian athletes uh, being able to compete, but not calling themselves Russian. Exactly. So, and the status of Russia is still somewhat up in the air. And I think until the opening ceremony of the Olympics begins, it's hard to know fully what's going to happen. Um, there's a Q&A on the Olympic website that runs sort of thousands of words long. It's a, obviously the, the IOC sort of position is quite complex. But in short, um, the IOC expel, suspended uh, Russia, the Russian Olympic Committee, uh, in relation to the um, war in Ukraine and particularly the um, involvement of um, Ukrainian, uh, Russian-occupied Ukrainian um, regions' involvement in the Russian Olympic Committee. That was sort of what um, the IOC said breached the Olympic Charter. It violated the territorial integrity of the Ukrainian Olympic Committee. Um, And so Russia has been um, suspended on that basis. Um, However, and, and a point of significant controversy is that the IOC has said that Russian athletes and Belarusian athletes are still able to participate at the Paris Olympics, um, provided they're not uh, sort of pro-war, actively pro-war, part of the armed services and so on. Um, And that's a point of contention. Ukrainian athletes um, and officials have have criticised the um, fact that Russian and Belarusian uh, athletes will still be able to participate um, I think that the IOC's position is still sort of somewhat provisional. So it, it is entirely possible that between now and July next year, when the Olympics begin in Paris, that position may change. But as things stand right now, there'll be no official Russian uh, delegation, no Russian flag, Russia won't march in the opening ceremony. Um, but Russian athletes will be there as individuals. Now, that mirrors the situation in Tokyo where Russian participation was limited due to their uh, anti-doping violations uh, in some respects. So um, in some ways, we're seeing a continuation of Russia being ousted um, by the Olympic movement. So Russia plans to host what it's calling Friendship Games. Can you tell us more about that plan and, and how it's been received? Yes, Russia, um, in response to um, these current situations, have been um, seeking to uh, cause trouble um, for the international sporting arena. Um, uh, they, you know, for example, in relation to the um, the uh, Olympic truce, uh, they were critical of, and they, they sort of suggested that there should be a reference in the text. The reason it went to a vote was because they said there should be a, a reference to equal depoliticized access to sport. Uh, as part of it, um, because they feel that their expulsion uh, was um, political interference. Um, uh, and it, uh, further to that, in, in their response, they're seeking to host a Friendship Games next year um, uh, to um, uh, uh, sort of take their own stand uh, and as a bit of a rebuke 
um, to the IOC. Now, interestingly, Thomas Barsh, the IOC president, has criticised that and said those games will only lead to further political fragmentation of international sport. Um, so uh, no love lost right now between Russia and the IOC. So the United Nations General Assembly, in calling for this truce, is a little like a, a Miss World contestant. All it really wants is world peace. Does it have any likelihood of, of, of that holding in any way? Uh, you'd think in the current times we're in, um, uh, it's unlikely to have that much impact on the, the um, sad state of affairs around the world. Uh, of course, the added uh, added complication here is the ongoing conflict in, in Gaza as well. And, and of course, um, what happens there remains to be seen. And uh, hopefully that conflict is not still going um, by the time of the Olympics. But um, notwithstanding the great historical legacy of the Olympic cruise, um, it, it has no uh, official status in law. And so um, you can't imagine, particularly given Russia's resistance to it, their abstention from the UN General Assembly vote. In fact, they pushed it to a vote in the first place and their own friendship games. You can't imagine Russia's going to be paying much heed to the Olympic truce uh, come uh, July next year. Kieran, thank you very much indeed. That was Kieran Pender talking to us from Canberra, and this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at ubs.com. Well, it's time to talk art now with Ben Luke, who's review editor at The Art Newspaper and host of its podcasts, A Brush With and The Week in Art. He joins me in the studio. Ben, this is the time of the programme where I heave a sigh of relief, as I suppose many of our listeners do, because we've dealt with all the unpleasant stuff, <laughs> everything awful that's happening around the world. And now it's time for a roundup of art news. But of course, that unpleasantness is seeping absolutely everywhere and art is not immune from it either. Absolutely so not. let's start with this New York Times article, which is talking about Documenta, the German contemporary art exhibition, which is huge. It's massively prestigious. Uh, and the crisis it's in, again, down to the Israel-Gaza conflict. Absolutely. And um, this has actually been ongoing before that conflict. In 2002, last year, there was a documenta and it was riddled with accusations of anti-Semitism. There was a, a work by an Indonesian collective that included anti-Semitic caricatures, frankly, and was removed. And the organisers, Rangrupa, another collective, were beset with accusations and then there were counter-accusations um, because they felt there was an Islamophobic um, response from certain communities. So there was, it was already tense. There was a reorganisation. Then uh, there was an appointment of a, a committee essentially to find the next artistic director and that has now been beset with accusations of anti-Semitism. One member of the um, committee called Ranjit Hoskate, who's a poet and critic from India, signed a petition against a an event in India which featured um, a discussion of Zionism and Hindu nationalism. Um, that was picked up. It was reported in the press and he was put under pressure by Documenta's administration and uh, he ended up resigning um, and accused it of a monstrous accusation, um, absolutely denied any accusations of anti-Semitism. That was followed by the resignation of the entire finding committee. So all four of the other members resigned as a result of this event. And then 
what we're faced with is Documenta plunged into total crisis because it now can't appoint an, an artistic director and yet again it is beset with these, these accusations. It's really interesting to note that because of the special circumstances relating to anti-Semitism in Germany of all places, there is an extreme sensitivity in the cultural community at the moment to it. And Claudia Rott, who's the, the culture minister, described the, the petition that, that Ranjit Hoskate signed as anti-Semitic and said it included conspiracy theories relating to Israel and so on. And, but, and this petition was actually back in 2019. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's long ago. Yes, it's, yeah. it's a historic petition, but that is the level of the sensitivity. Mm. But it's really interesting, I think, in, the, in this resignation letter from the four other curators from the Finding Committee, they basically have said that you cannot now make a contemporary project in Germany because of because this extreme climate is restricting freedom of expression, the nuanced um, engagement with complex ideas and complex situations. And the fact is, you know, to your introduction, so much of contemporary art is getting more and more politically engaged. You have almost two art worlds. You have the, the commercial art world where it's going, you know, massive prices, you know, all the pizzazz. And then you have this, the kind of documentary art world, which is about exploring political ideas, about social ideas. And it's seen as a safe space for doing that. But I think the Finding Committee feel that, that that is no longer the case. And so they cannot, they say, put on a, a documenter under these current conditions. Uh, and it's not only there. I mean, the uh, uh, Art Forum, too, is, is having yeah. the same problem. Yes, there was a letter in Art Forum published in October, which featured the signatories, which featured signatories uh, who I described to a fellow co- a colleague at the art newspaper as kind of a who's who of contemporary art. It, it was an extraordinary list of artists. Joan Jonas, Peter Doig, um, Barbara Kruger, and loads of academics and writers, really notable names, uh, signed this, this uh, letter, which was in support of Palestinian liberation. It called for a ceasefire. It called for the flow of humanitarian aid into Gaza. But it didn't mention Hamas. And this was really crucial because there was a massive reaction. Of course, it was, a, I think, a, a huge error, actually. They could have just said, we condemn the atrocities, which they later did, but it was too late. The genie mm. was out of the bottle by that stage. And it has prompted a massive rift in the art world. Frankly, there has been an ongoing tension between artists who are often left-leaning. I don't know a right-wing artist in my, in my experience of meeting them. Often support the Palestinian cause and... The people that buy their art, frankly, billionaires uh, who are out there buying art don't tend to be uh, progressive in their politics generally. Of course, that's not a you know not wholly true, but but very much, very often they are captains of business. They are people who are involved in um, uh, complex industries that that many of the artists condemn, and so on. And so there has been a rift in the art world, which has been kind of unsaid and occasionally flares up. But it feels like the Israel-Gaza situation has really heightened the tensions. And, I, you know, it does feel like it's uh, no turning back from this point because mm. artists are up in arms attending protests, writing letters. There are Jewish artists who, in the, in the Jewish Voice for Peace movement who are protesting at the bottom of the Statue of Liberty. This is a massive issue. The art world is in, in extreme crisis, I would say, in relation to what it does because, again, you have these art fairs, you have auctions going on and nobody wants to talk about it publicly but we know there's all these machinations there's there's artists who are whose shows at museums are being called to be to be cancelled because they support 
the Palestinian cause and call for a ceasefire. So there's this extreme uh, debate and it, and it feels like it's it's festering. It really I mean, does. Ai Weiwei is one that's been cancelled. Yeah, that's really interesting. The, the, the Ai Weiwei had a show at the Listen Gallery in London lined up. That has been, well, initially it was postponed, but we've since been told by Ai Weiwei's studio that three further exhibitions, one at Listen and two at another gallery, have been have been cancelled. So um, that was due to a social media post that he put out, which um, did contain some... Uh, comments which could be construed as conspiracy theories against Jewish people or even anti-Semitic. But he, um, of course, denies that. Um, but yes, uh, I, so, so right at the top of the art world, there are artists whose, um, whose words are being scrutinised and who are facing the issue head on and, 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 and encountering problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And just very, very quickly, quick look at the British market not yet reaping Brexit dividends. Who would have thought? Honestly. <laughs> um, yes, so yes, so um, there was a lot of gloomy predictions around the Brexit campaign, of course, like there were about the rest of the economy. It hasn't suffered. It hasn't, you know, in the, to the extent that some people were predicting, but neither has it reaped the rewards and, and headed for the sunny uplands of, of, of the economy. No, it's 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 resilient, but it's struggling a bit. Basically, yeah. yeah. Uh, ben, thank you very much indeed. Uh, that was all very interesting. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Now, Sir Anthony Gormley is one of the world's best-known and most popular artists, with his famous life-size casts, usually of himself, seen all over the world. Sir Anthony is perhaps best known for huge sculptures, such as the Angel of the North here in the UK, with wings wider than a Boeing 747 spreading out in welcome to the millions driving by. His latest project, called Body Politic, has just opened in London. Once again, Sir Anthony is exploring the relationship between our bodies and the world we inhabit. Monocle's Emma Nelson went to meet him at White Cube Gallery. We're going into a resting place. Here is our threshold of 1m05 to 2m70. And now we are in a space that is uh, yeah, about 37 metres long and about 27 metres wide. And it has 244 bodies in it but these bodies are made out of well big blocks of um, fired clay it's hard to miss anthony gormley his six foot four frame stands him out from the crowd and models of that frame have been cast and placed all over the world you can see his sculptures atop mountains by an australian lake on a dutch seashore And in the north of England, more than 30 million people drive past the Angel of the North every single year. Some claim it's the most viewed piece of art in the world. The sculptors are quite literally out there. But today, he's leading me through Resting Place, one of the artworks in his latest exhibition, Body Politic, and I'm struggling to keep up. When you mean bodies, you mean representation of human bodies in clay form or bodies as in well, actually, a, a, an entity or something? They're actually buildings. And uh, if you come down, if we go a little bit low... We're on we, our knees now. <laughs> we, we are looking out at a, at a cityscape with towers and, uh, and archways and ways through. And, yeah, for me, it's really important that the minute you come through the threshold, if you're in a large group of people, you have to split up because this is like a great maze or a labyrinth and you have to find your own way through it. 
And as you do, you're invited to look down on these bodies as if you were in a helicopter looking down on a, on a building. You know, some look like very august, very symmetrical municipal buildings. Some are much more complicated and maybe even you can't see the body at first and then you realize that actually it's like a fetal figure that is crunched up into itself. Anyway, as you go through, I think the invitation is to say, oh, I know what that feels like. That's, that's a bit like being on the beach on a summer's day, looking up into a deep blue sky. Or, oh, I know what that feels like. You're really cold and wet and trying to like not shiver. Which one are you right now? <laughs> I don't know. I'm a mixture of all of them, probably. Is there one that's... I'm the, trepida- I'm the one with trepidation trying not to trip over it and break it. <laughs> well, no, that, that, that is important to say that each of these blocks is free. So that these are loose assemblies. Um, they may be in 244 particular forms, but they can be deconstructed. So, so here's a brick. Yeah, you can see they're drying as we speak. It smells very particular as you come in. There's the, 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 the sound of the clay. There are five rooms containing five works in Anthony Gormley's body politic. In each, Gormley examines the relationship between us as people, bodies, and the modern world. From living digitally, struggling with climate change, even the way countries treat their refugees. Anthony leads me through it at pace. Where are we going now? We can do one more. This is called Bind, and this is absolutely dependent on the room that it finds itself in. It's attached to the ceiling and to the walls and to the floor. And it's basically the mapping of the internal condition of a body, then literally connected to the determining condition of the room that it's in. Where do we dwell? The first place that we dwell is a biological body. The second place that we dwell is the built environment. Away from the display, however, there is a deep thoughtfulness to Gormley's approach. I think, for me, this is an exhibition that is an audit of us now, our fears and our hopes and maybe our necessary responsibilities, both to ourselves as individuals and to the world at large. That means both the planet and uh, other living creatures. We are now urban animals and we have made a world that determines our choices and our freedoms and our, and indeed our, our movement. I think that we're in a very particular time. Everybody is aware of the growing climate catastrophe and has no idea how to respond or resolve or behave responsibly in face of it. We're in the middle of two particularly vicious and ghastly wars. We are aware of massive and ever-increasing divisions between the rich and the poor. So I've tried to acknowledge the fact that yeah, this year the statistics tell us that 110 million people are on the move. They're migrants having been uprooted from their place of belonging by either climate catastrophe, war, or sheer inability to live because of poverty. And I think we've got to recognize that there is a fundamental dichotomy, if not conflict, in these two human needs. One, the need for security, protection, refuge, 
and the other our need to roam. And I think that we haven't resolved this dichotomy. We allow money, goods, to travel freely across borders, but not bodies. In many cases, this is an absolute injustice. How do you feel about being seen as a more political artist? I think every choice that we make as individuals is political. Even the choices that we make to ignore politics. I don't think that is a serious choice. We have to take our representatives to account. I'm confident that the work is good, but it now has to do its work. There's nothing like it. It's just really, really exciting. It's like, oh my goodness, what is going to happen next in terms of this relationship between viewer and object, thinking and feeling? I mean, it's a huge privilege, but it's hugely exciting. That was Sir Anthony Gormley talking to Monocle's Emma Nelson and the exhibition runs at the White Cube Gallery in London between now and the 28th of January. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers Emma Searle, Carlotta Ribello and Isabella Jewell, our researcher Harrison Warlock and our studio manager Tamsin Howard with editing assistance from Callum McLean. After the headlines, there's more music on the way and the briefing is live at midday in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. I'll return on The Globalist at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.